We're going to be continuing this morning in our James series. Um, We are going to be reading from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So uh, let's turn there uh, together uh, to begin. We have uh, gone through the first chapter of James uh, together. Um, We, just to to remind uh, ourselves, uh, we said uh, at the beginning of this series, this book is most likely written by James, an early church father, uh, the um, leader of the church at Jerusalem, the church that stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, today, uh, James is certainly his words. Uh, we said James had two main purposes for uh, writing this letter, to encourage and to challenge. Today's words are certainly challenging. Let's dive in uh, to the word together, starting in James chapter 2. Uh, Verse 1. These are the words of James. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if, if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit, here is a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? We'll pause there. Um, James here uh, sets this scenario uh, before us in this letter of uh, two people entering into a church gathering. Uh, one who is dressed in fine clothes, wearing uh, fine jewelry. Clearly, uh, this is a person of wealth. Uh, maybe it's a person um, of high status or power. Uh, and then the other person is someone who is clearly of low status or no status, low power or no power. Clearly, it's someone, uh, as he says, who is dressed in in poor clothing, uh, someone uh, who is less well-off. And James uh, says that we are not to show favoritism and give the best seat to the one who is dressed finely, and then no seat at all or the lowest seat on the floor uh, to the one who is dressed uh, in poor garments. I wonder if this is something that James isn't just coming up with on the spot, but I wonder if this is something that James has uh, either observed within his own church meetings, uh, or maybe he's heard of other churches because he's writing this letter out to other churches to be read. I wonder if he's heard of this happening at other churches, or maybe it's a mixture of both. Um, If we read the letters of Paul, uh, which hopefully we all do, uh, we can see that this actually is something that Paul speaks to as well. This was a problem in the early church. The picture that he paints, this was maybe all too common. 
these distinctions being made and often uh, having to do with wealth and status of the person coming into a church meeting. And if I can be so bold, I think this is probably a prevalent problem going forth from the early church throughout all of history to today, uh, and it will always be a prevalent and timely uh, problem for us to talk about. I couldn't help but read uh, James's words here, um, and as uh, we began this series, um, we talked about how the book of James, James is drawing heavily on the teachings of Jesus, specifically the Sermon on the Mount um, and the book of Proverbs. I couldn't help uh, and maybe it's the fact that we talked about it this week at youth group, but I couldn't help but think about uh, the beginning of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 5, a couple books back, uh, the first book in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins his most famous uh, series of teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, because he's teaching it up on a mountainside. Um, although in Israel, if you look around, uh, they're not mountains like we have. They're more like big hills, <laughs> but that, they were their mountains. So uh, Jesus was teaching up on a mountainside to a large crowd that had gathered to hear what he had to say. And how he begins his most famous teaching is he begins with this section called the Beatitudes, which uh, can be translated as the blessings. And we're about to see why uh, it's the blessings, the Beatitudes. Um, but Jesus is here and he's speaking to the crowds. And this is an announcement that he is calling out. Let's read uh, the Beatitudes together, starting in verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What Jesus does here, we should recognize, is something very, very different. Ultimately, who Jesus, who is God, blesses here uh, is not who the world and us living in the world typically think of as blessed. Uh, the world and us being a part of the world, typically we think, oh my goodness, they are so blessed. Uh, typically, uh, that is not who Jesus lays out to be blessed. The world tells us that you're blessed if uh, you are rich, without want or care. The world tells us uh, that you are blessed if you have power. Uh, in fact, I would say the message of this world is that uh, you are blessed if you have power, and you can use that power to get whatever it is that you want, whatever way that you need to do to get it. You're just playing the game so that you can achieve that goal or that thing that you desire. 
Certainly, uh, the words of Jesus here when he calls out the poor and the persecuted is different than who the world blesses. Um, Christian author Scott McKnight says it this way. He says, clearly, Jesus goes against the grain. Jesus blesses those whom no one else blesses. And I think that the Beatitudes here in Scott McKnight's words are really absolutely in line with the type of person that we saw Jesus to be as we read the gospel stories, both in word and in deed. Uh, Jesus, as he lived life here on earth as one of us, uh, Jesus went around lifting up the people that society would dictate as unblessed. Uh, He lifted up outcasts. He lifted up uh, undesirables, people that uh, his culture, the people of his day, uh, did not desire to be with it all, but this is what Jesus does. And so a question we have to ask ourselves is, well, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then what is our place to do the same? Is that what we should do? Is, should we lift up those who are unblessed, outcasts, the undesirables of our society. I think as we read through the blessings here, the Beatitudes, uh, this is a more simple way, I think, that uh, what Jesus is communicating to those who listen. I think Jesus is saying, I see you. You are not forgotten. You are blessed. I believe that this is what Jesus is saying to everyone who is there in this crowd, everyone who has heard this message throughout the ages, everyone who has read this message and fits one of these categories. This is what Jesus is saying to them. And I believe that the message of the church is something that's very similar. The message of us as Christians is something that's very similar. We uh, should be going out, and our message should be that of, I see you, God loves you, and so do I. And so do I. Let's continue to read. Um, let's turn back to the book of James, chapter 2. And let's, con- uh, well, let's uh, reread James' words in verse 5. This is what James says again. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? If you're following along, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 6, yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? I think James here is asking us a a question uh, that we, uh, not just the people who are reading this letter, uh, who this was originally written to, but I think this is a question that we need to wrestle with constantly as we live um, in this world. I think James is asking us, uh, why, are, why are we, why am I so obsessed with the rich, with the powerful, 
with the famous. Why am I so obsessed with the rich, the powerful, and the famous? He's asking uh, his readers that he's writing to directly, but I think this is something that we absolutely uh, need to be asking ourselves today. I think the answer is really, really simple if we are to dig in and just say, why is it that we're obsessed um, as people, as a culture, but truly what culture is not obsessed with the rich, the powerful, the famous, but certainly that rings true uh, in America. We have a celebrity worship here, right? Why are we so obsessed? I think it has to do with our own selfishness. I think that it has to do because we want something for ourselves. Uh, If you ever see a famous person enter into a room, what happens? People start to gather around, right? And we have these things that we do uh, that are just commonplace. We ask them for an autograph, right? Because uh, that has worth to us and certainly it has worth uh, to the world, even a monetary worth. We ask if we can take a selfie with them, uh, maybe partially because, wow, all the likes that I could get on my social media, if I had this famous person next to me, sometimes we just want to shake their hand and be able to walk away with the story of, oh, do you know who I met? And maybe part of that is that We want to have a little bit of fame for ourselves, a little story that can make us feel good. And sometimes when it comes to the uh, people who are powerful or who are rich, uh, what we are hoping uh, to get may be something more physical from them. Maybe um, some of their blessings uh, will rub off on us uh, if we were to get to know them. And they were just, maybe they would bless us with something. Our culture absolutely teaches us to be obsessed with the rich, the powerful, the famous. As Christians, this is what we need to recognize. When we feel uh, this in ourselves and we recognize this in ourselves, we need to stop. We need to say, hold on. Am I not a follower of Jesus? Jesus Christ the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, God himself. Why am I so obsessed with the kings of this earth? Why am I so obsessed with them? In following Jesus, I know Jesus, who is God, the King of kings. And when we think about that, when we think about who Jesus is, we should recognize that As Jesus lived his life, he started to gain a reputation. People started to call him a friend of sinners. Who Jesus sought to have time spent with were not the rich and the powerful, but who he spent his most time with were the undesirables of society. Whether that's the poor, the uneducated, the sick, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors. These are who Jesus spends most of his time with. These are who Jesus truly calls and says, not just spending time with them, but says, come, follow me, be with me. 
And so the difficult question that we need to wrestle with or questions um, is, so first we have to ask ourselves when we are observing, observing this with Jesus, we have to say, am I a follower of Jesus? If your answer is yes, like mine is, the hard questions then are, again, to self-critique, look inside and say, if I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus lived this way, who do I value? Maybe more aptly, who do I not value? Who do I seek, maybe even fight, to spend time with? Who do I avoid? Who do I not even want to make eye contact with? I think these are the difficult questions we have to wrestle with. And James here, as he talks about favoritism, uh, he's saying, listen, the way of the world is not the way of Jesus. And therefore, because we are the church followers of Jesus, it should not be the way of the church. Let's continue in verse 8, reading along with James. James says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism and commit sin and are convicted by the law, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James, again here, uh, is calling us to remember the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew uh, chapter 22, he's asked by an expert in the law, uh, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said, Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two. This expert in the law asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is, uh, and Jesus seems to give a little bonus answer. He says, well, uh, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. And the second is like it. Uh, this teacher of the law might have interjected and said, whoa, I didn't ask you for the second, Jesus. But Jesus gives it to him uh, because Jesus doesn't answer the way we expect him to answer. That's very, very common, a common theme throughout the gospel. In fact, sometimes he doesn't even answer. Uh, but Jesus here gives two answers. The first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. The second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he do this? Two reasons, I think. One, I think that Jesus is getting at the heart of the person asking, and in doing so is getting at our hearts, all of our hearts. He's digging deeper than we are even digging as we ask the question. And I think, too, because in Jesus' mind, 
these two commandments are inseparable. You cannot follow one and not follow the other. In the story uh, that, well, let me, let me mention this first. So I have been uh, reflecting on a part of this passage a lot over the last couple years, um, and it is the last line here. The last line uh, says that all the law and the prophets depend on these uh, two commandments. Is Jesus serious when he says that? Because that is a very, very strong statement. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments? That's very strong. I think James does take Jesus seriously when James in this passage says, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law, footnote here, why does he call it the royal law? Well, because it comes from Jesus who is king of kings. This is the royal law. If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. I think James takes Jesus' words very seriously when he says these are the greatest commandments and all the law and prophets depend on these two commandments. The Duns uh, read to us two passages this morning. Uh, in the first one, uh, we see something very similar to what we see in Matthew uh, 22. Um, someone asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. Jesus says, well, you tell me. And he answers correctly. He says basically what Jesus says here. Maybe he, he just came from another teaching of Jesus, and he was like, yeah, I know that. I wrote that one down. But he answers correctly. But then there's another question. And this question, I think, is going so deep into our hearts as humans, this person asking Jesus about the greatest commandment, he says, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a parable about a good Samaritan. And ultimately, I think Jesus knows that that is not the question that this man wants to ask. And ultimately, I think it's not the question that we in our hearts want to ask. It's not, who is my neighbor? The question we are asking is, Jesus, who is not my neighbor? Because you see, Jesus, I have, uh, I have some people that I really don't like. <laughs> um, I really, yeah, don't like is putting it mildly. And if I'm to be honest, you say love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I have some people that I don't want to love in general, let alone love them like myself. So Jesus, just tell me where that line in the sand is uh, tell me who is out, who is in, so that I can feel better about myself when I don't love those who are not my neighbor. And Jesus tells this man a parable about a good Samaritan. If you know anything about Samaritans uh, and Jews, they despised each other. They despised each other so much that they did things like they would take uh, bones of dead people and they'd go and they'd put them into their the, the other people's temple to defile it. It was not a good relationship between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus tells this person a story about a good Samaritan who helped out 
a Jewish traveler, when even a priest and a Levi wouldn't. And he says at the end, you tell me, who is the neighbor? And this person listening can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, oh, well, the one who helped the person, obviously. I think Jesus struck a nerve here. I think he struck a nerve. And if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus makes it abundantly clear when we get to the Sermon on the Mount and we read his words where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If that parable didn't make it clear enough, Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is saying, everyone is your neighbor. Everyone, including your enemies, including those who persecute you, they are also your neighbor. Because God created all people in his image Everyone is your neighbor. No one is to be excluded. He ends that passage on loving your neighbor, and he says this. uh, He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a pretty high call that Jesus gives to us. The word that Jesus uses um, here. That means perfect is teleos. Uh, it is translated uh, quite often um, in most translations as perfect, and that, that's a perfectly good, perfectly good uh, translation for the word uh, teleos. This word teleos appears later um, in multiple parts of the New Testament. Uh, maybe the most famous place that it appears is um, in uh, 1 John 4, where it talks about the perfect. Love that drives out fear. The teleos, love that drives out fear. Perfect is a good translation. I'm not arguing with perfect, but I think sometimes we can go and dig a little deeper and say, well, what, does, what are the translations of this word that can give us a clearer understanding of the words of Scripture? The word teleos um, can also be uh, translated to mean complete or completeness. I don't know about you, but for me, this gives me further understanding when Jesus says, be teleos, just like your heavenly Father is teleos, be complete, just like God is complete. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son, that is a teleos kind of love, one in which every single person is encompassed in that love. And ultimately, this is the love that we as Christians are called to have for all of our neighbors. Again, no one excluded. But teleos love is not the love of this world that we live in. In fact, I would say that this world that we live in uh, loves division and loves brokenness and fractures, and loves to teach us to draw those lines in the sand, to say who is out, who is not our neighbor, and who is in, to the point where we are taught, no, 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 don't love them. No, hate them. Hate who they are. Hate what they think. Hate what they believe. 
hate them. Again, this is not about agreeing with everything, but Jesus calls us to love even our enemies, teleos. And we live in a world that loves to divide and teaches us to divide. Uh, it's pretty clear um, to me in the 33 years that I've uh, lived my life that uh, things like politics <laughs> really fracture human relationships. It's pretty clear uh, as we look through history and look to events today that things like race fractures us as people. And certainly wealth does this as well. We could write a whole list of things, right? And the thing that we need to recognize, and again, James calls us to self-critique, and he's talking about church gatherings. We need to recognize that this makes its way into the church. We could go out and very easily Go out, and if you want to, you could find a red church or a blue church, a Republican church, a Democratic, a liberal, a conservative. You can easily find that if that's what you want. You could easily go out and find uh, a, a white church, a black church, a Hispanic church, fill in the blank. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of all of our American culture and I think that that is still alive and well today and it breaks God's heart. You can go out and easily find a church that you could label as a rich church or a poor church. Have you ever personally walked into a church and you could just tell that you didn't belong there? Maybe some of us haven't. Maybe some of us have had that experience. Maybe it's gone even further that maybe you've walked into a church at some point and you could tell by observing and by listening that not only did you not belong there, but that you are someone that that church might see as an undesirable. If they just knew you a little bit more, they don't want you there. James says no. James here uh, tells us that this is not the way and we should not expect the world to operate any different. In fact, uh, Christian author uh, David White Jr., he says this, he says, empires will do what empires do. We should expect this. But the people of God must remain faithful to love their neighbors, the strangers, and even their enemies amidst the violence James is calling us here in this passage to recognize that favoritism is inconsistent with the heart of God. And for us who call ourselves followers of God, if this is true, then it should be inconsistent with our hearts as well. Jesus calls us to teleos, complete love. And while James here is focused on church gatherings, uh, coming together as the body of Christ, uh, we also should recognize that although James uh, isn't going into it here, uh, this teleos love, this complete love for our neighbor, enemies included, is how we are supposed to be not just when we gather, but as we go out as well. 
because we are all called, if we follow Christ, to be ambassadors of Christ, to reflect this teleos love as we go out and as we speak and act and live among other people. And so again, this difficult question of how do I interact when I come into contact with those who my culture would describe as undesirables, or if I am to really self-critique and get deep into my own heart, say, who I, in my own heart, see as undesirables. As we go out, how do we interact with the undesirables? Students, uh, I am going to take a guess that school has not changed much since I've been there. In some ways, I'm sure it has. I've seen how you guys do math. It's ludicrous. I know that Things have changed, but I'm going to guess that in many ways it hasn't. I'm going to guess whether you're talking about junior high, high school, college, um, whether you're talking about public school, private, private Christ, Christian school, uh, co-op for homeschool, I'm going to guess that there are undesirables in your community. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, how do you interact with those undesirables? Do you interact with them like Jesus does? Do you avoid them? Do you add to the culture and the words that make people feel unblessed, undesired, and outcasts? Adults were not off the hook. The high school mentality, unfortunately, does not leave once you graduate high school, as us, as adults, as we go out into, our, into the world, as we go out into work, as we go out into social gatherings outside of church, as we're walking down the streets of Spokane, what about the undesirables? How do we interact with them? Do we interact with them? Do we avoid eye contact? Who do we value? Who do we not value? Who do we seek to spend time with? Who do we avoid? James here, in verse 4, he's telling us, listen, do not do this. Do not become judges with evil thoughts, making distinctions among yourselves. And then he ends this passage with this verse. It's got to be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's, it's poetic. It's beautiful. It's simple. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Honestly, I think you could take this verse and you could embroider it on the front of your Bibles because this is the story. Mercy triumphing over judgment. This is our God. This is the story of Jesus in the gospel. Mercy triumphing over judgment. Judgment, if you were here and you uh, might remember uh, a while back I was preaching a sermon and I gave you um, this little exercise where we uh, have this fill-in-the-blank statement that Jesus is the most blank person who ever lived. And as we read through our Bibles, as we study God's Word, as we come across uh, characteristics, we can ask ourselves, can I fill that in and does this work? for Jesus, and what does this teach me 
Uh, I want to make the statement uh, that it is true that Jesus is the most merciful person who ever lived. If you know someone who is more merciful than Jesus, then come and tell me about them, please. Because I don't. When it comes uh, to this verse we have here at the end, um, I think this statement, when it comes to fill in the name, mercy triumphs over judgment, I would say that Jesus fits in pretty well there. When it comes to Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's the question. Are you a follower of Jesus? I want to follow Jesus with my life in everything I do. And my hope is that as I live, when I interact with people, whatever status level they are that the world gives them, however much money they have or don't have, whatever the color of their skin, whatever political affiliation, I don't care. They are people made in the image of God. And I want to live my life becoming more like Jesus and less like me. And ultimately, what my hope is, is that when people interact with me, they can fill in my name there and say, you know what, when it comes to Mitch, mercy triumphs over judgment. How about you? Do you want this to be something that people can say of you? Can people say this of you? If not, what needs to change? Let's work on that together. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Dear God, um, we thank you for this, uh, this letter of James. We thank you for its challenging words. Uh, whether or not um, this was a scenario that James was uh, personally familiar with, it's very clear that he is passionate about teaching us that we are not to show favoritism, to make distinctions between people, but we are to have the teleos kind of love, the complete love that Jesus points us to. I pray that we can be a church that whoever enters into those doors that we embrace them with the love of Christ. That as people walk into our doors, uh, they will not feel uh, division and judgment coming at them for how they dress or how they look, but ultimately that they will feel the love of Jesus, that we will be people that will show others that they have value to God. So much value that he sent his son to die for them for me, for us, for all of us. Give us this teleos complete love. We love you, and we'll talk to you soon. Amen.